you're listening to the Down East Mike Podcast, the quirky little podcast from Maine. And now, your host, Down East Mike. Why, good morning. Good morning, everybody. This is Down East Mike. You're listening to the Down East Mike Podcast. We are all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed this morning. This is August 17th, 2022. It's Wednesday. This is episode 50 of the Down East Mike podcast, news and commentary, all things Down East related. We are way down east. We are way down along the coastline of Maine where the lobster boats are always bobbing at the buoy. The seagulls are always mewing up above. The fog is ever-present offshore waiting to come in, and it's down east Maine. I was out the other day uh, slopping about on the trawler deck. You know, I was pitching hake down into the hold and throwing ice on top. And the hot sun's beating down. I'm slipping and sliding on the deck. And the smell's overwhelming. And Frank's up in the wheelhouse yelling down at me, Down east, Mike, a little bit faster if you can stand it, please. And I'm like, God, this is just awful. But then I got to thinking to myself, it could be so much worse. I could be some poor, sorry sap stuck in an office somewhere under fluorescent lights providing tech support to people overseas uh, in front of a laptop that don't speak English well and trying to get them to reboot it and I could be clicking with a mouse and doing all sorts of computerizing stuff and phone support. And I thought, you know, in view of that circumstance, pitching Hake into a hold is not all that bad. Well, this is the Downey Spike podcast, and our motto here is some of this is whimsy, some of it is true, and the interpretation of it all is entirely up to you. In today's episode, we do have some exciting things. The Brick, the Bricklin Unravels, from this day in August 17th, 1974. Uh, 30 Stoves in a Barn, that story from 1906. The Silent Rubbing Specialist from 1906, and that's a court case. We're going to look into that one from this day, 1906. That'll be a good one. We have Maine's bi-weekly bird, uh, and we'll be talking about that as well. Our word of the day is advert, and that's A-D-V-E-R-T. And it kind of struck us because it, we found it used in a not in a normal sense. The definition of advert is to turn the mind or attention or used with to. And you also use it to. Adverted to the speaker. So turn the mind or attention. To call attention in the course of speaking or writing. To make reference. Advert is a noun. Uh, and and uh, we have some on it. It's from the Middle English. Advertin or advertin. To notice Think of, consider, be heedful. It's borrowed from the Anglo-French avatar or adverter to notify. 
Uh, you may be familiar with the noun advert, which is used especially in British sources as a shortened form of advertisement. That's one way to use it, but it's also been used as a verb in English since the 15th century. And there's a hint about the origin of the verb in the idea of turning the mind or attention to something, and that word derives from the Anglo-French, from the Latin verb advertere, which in turn comes from the Latin vertere, meaning to turn. So advert, meaning to turn your attention to. I just thought that was interesting. I don't, we don't see that in common use. How about our birthdays today? Uh, special happy birthday to Harold in Portland, Maine. Harold's going to be 55 today. Harold fixes uh, elevators. And he says that you really only need one cable to hold them up, even though they have three or so. You think about that next time you're up in the elevator. Happy birthday to Williametta of Eastport. Williametta turns 90 today. And her grandchildren appreciate her wisdom and knowledge. And she makes everyone in the nursing home laugh quite frequently with her impersonations of the president. That would be something to see. Happy birthday, Williametta. On this day in 1974, news out of uh, Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, the gillnet herring fishermen in southwestern Nova Scotia had gone on strike rather than accept depressed market prices being offered by area fish buyers. Dick Stewart, the executive director of the Atlantic Fishermen's Association, said the herring fishermen began tying up their boats Friday after local buyers refused to budge their offer of $6 a barrel of herring. Now, do you know how much herring's in, in, in a barrel? You know how big that is? Six bucks for that? Prices last year vary between 10 and $12 a barrel, but buyers say poor. European markets this year have forced prices down. That was in 1974. The Bricklin uh, from St. John, New Brunswick, two key officials of the Bricklin Canada Limited, a newly established automobile manufacturing firm in New Brunswick, have resigned. Uh, Jack Hennessy was the vice president general manager of the company's St. John plant, and Gerald Hudson, manager of the New Brunswick plant, uh, resigned earlier this month. The comptroller, Ian Watson, uh, said Friday. Uh, so if you remember, the Bricklin was that, that fancy car they were making in Brunswick. They went up there and got a bunch of loans. They received more than $7 million in loans from the provincial and federal government. And they're talking about it. The car was a $7,500 sports car, supposed to be sold throughout northeastern U.S. in the summer and fall. It was unveiled in June 25th. And then all these people resigned. Uh, then they revealed at the same time the plant was short of parts for the assembly line and the workers had been allowed to go home early. Sort of like today. And I understand they bring in the Bricklin back as well. That was in 1974. From 1906 on this day, we had a story out of the Lewiston paper, Decayed Meat for the Lunch Counters, 30 Stoves in a Barn, and the men were fixing rotten pork and beef. Men working in an awful stench were arrested and the outfit seized. The sickening business was discovered in Chicago, 25,000 pounds of meat unfit for use. And the story goes that the free lunch 
served in hundreds of saloons in Chicago is largely composed of meat in condition absolutely unfit for use, was discovered yesterday by food inspector Murray when his force of assistants raided a barn at 124 Illinois Street owned by William Davidson. Can't you picture like the the G-men going in there like Elliot Ness to raid this beef factory? The place contained 30 stoves over which six men were working in an endeavor to prepare decayed pork and beef into a semblance of its original form and thereafter manufacture it into free lunch for the saloon trade. So basically, I think this is the the genesis of the story of mystery meat. The men working in the awful stench of the place were arrested on warrants sworn out by Inspector Murray and with Davidson, these warrants accusing them of violating the health ordinances of the city. The raid of the Illinois Street Barn followed the inspection of a cold storage warehouse, and in that warehouse they found 25,000 pounds of meat unfit for use. A search of the books of the company showed that the meat was a property of Davidson. In addition to the equipment at the barn for converting unsaleable meat into cuts from supposedly good roast, the inspectors found a plant for the manufacture of sausage of different kinds and other articles of food which usually adorn the free lunch counters in cheap or middle-class saloons. The entire plant was confiscated and will be used as evidence against Davidson and his assistants. Have you ever seen them make hamburger and they've got a little, the conveyor belt goes along with meat and every now and then they have some good meat and they'll chuck in and the computer senses how much protein it will keep it at the right level. So when you get to the 85% lean and then if it dips down below that, the guy will chuck in some more good meat. That's how that goes. August 17th, 1906, there was a big earthquake in Chile. Uh, every building in the city was damaged by the quake. Uh, the city of Valparaiso uh, in Chile reported badly damaged by earthquake. It may prove to be as serious as the San Francisco disaster. What else was going on that time? Well, we have the story about Dr. Paul Castor, and he's the guy. He was the silent rubbing specialist. On his business card, it said SRS, and that was the abbreviation. Dr. Paul Castor, who's now held under a criminal charge in Lewiston for a number of years, has had an office and residence on Congress Street near the main eye and ear infirmary. His first location when he began his magnetic healing here was in the Deering District. As his patronage grew, he branched out into the Congress Street office, under whose front window was a big bronze sign which reads, Paul Castor, Magnetic Healer. Five years ago, the State Board of Registration of Medicine got after him with a pointed stick. He had not registered as a practicing physician, and when the late Dr. Meserve, secretary of the board, wrote him that he must register if he was to continue in Maine. He replied by next saying, I am a magnetic healer. I am. By the way, if you want anything further to do with me, consult my counsel. 
The board did not want, uh, did want something more of him and proceeded to call for it by presenting to the next grand jury evidence uh, against him. Uh, and this is about his practicing medicine without compliance. And that was in May 1901. He stood trial uh, on the indictment and he had a lawyer. So let's, let's move on a little bit here. The trial occupied two days and was very racy. The respondent making frequent outbreaks while under cross-examination. His general defense was that he was practicing without the use of drugs or surgical instruments and that he hadn't registered simply because it wasn't necessary because he healed by laying on of hands and by hypnotic and magnetic influence. Now, we have Mrs. Olivia Olson of Portland testifying that he treated her for sore eyes. And he told her there was an ulcer in one eye and he put in some sort of powder that caused the eyes to smart. He charged her $15. When he took the stand, he said this powder was only common salt. According to the testimony of other witnesses, he treated Mrs. Margaret Butler in October 1900 for curvature of the spine. He gave her massage treatment and hypodermic injections in the arms and back. To cure an attack of heart disease, Castor prescribed two doses of medicine for Aaron Lovejoy and treated him magnetically. And then James Gilson had facial neuralgia and Castor injected into his arm a solution that made him faint. Castor told him it was gold and charged Gilson $60. Charles Nation had trouble with his eyes. Castor dropped in a couple of pinches of salt that nearly set the patient into convulsions. So Castor's on the stand half a day, and under that time he's under cross-examination. He said with the single exception of Mr. Gilson, he had never treated a patient with any drug. He had occasionally had injected hypodermically salt water, and at times in treating eyes dropped in powdered salt. But most of his treatment was by massage and magnetic application. And then there came up the question whether a hypodermic syringe isn't a surgical instrument. Several local physicians testified that in their opinion, it is technically a surgical instrument and that bichloride of gold, which the respondent admitted using twice, is a poisonous drug. Doesn't this just sound awful? The picturesque feature of the trial was the dialogue which took place when the county attorney was endeavoring to pin Castor down to an explanation of what the initials SRS on his business cards meant. Castor dodged uh, dodged the question several times, but finally said the letters meant silent rubbing specialist. Asked to explain what he meant by that, he replied, Well, I do my healing principally by rubbing. I am silent when I do the rubbing, and I am a specialist. There you are, a silent rubbing specialist. <sighs> That's just awful. I wouldn't want to go to him, for him or anything. Do we have anything else on that? Let's see. During the cross-examination of Castor, he was asked what made him think hypodermic needles of salt water would heal. And with a show of sarcasm, he replied, I knew by a thought, a harmless, spontaneous thought, that came to my brain, and I never killed anyone by doing it either. Were you in a trance when that harmless, spontaneous thought came to your brain? The county attorney asked. 
Castor replied, No, sir, I was just as wide awake as you are now. In his closing argument, the defending attorney said the prosecution was an outcome of jealousy on the part of the regular physicians that Castor had brought to life, many of whom the regulars had nearly killed. Castor brings them back to life. Uh, the jury did bring in a verdict of guilty. Uh, exceptions were taken on the claim that the verdict was not in accordance with the law. The full bench overruled the exceptions the next criminal term in September. The case was put on a special docket, but Castor had to agree to quit in Portland. Let's look at, uh, we had a basketball game played on Squirrel Island on this day in 1906. A feature of the week was the girls' basketball game Monday afternoon between the Blacks and the Reds. It was played in a level green uh, between the farmhouses and the Nelson Dingley Cottage by teams of young ladies. And the Blacks did beat uh, the Reds, I think, in this one. It was a jolly game in which the keenest excitement was manifested, and so successful was it that it was proposed to have another game this season uh, with a team from off the island playing a picked-up team between the Reds and the Blacks. And in the game on Wednesday... All of the girls were in conventional basketball uniform of bloomers, and they made a pretty picture as they tumbled over the green in the chase of the ball. Sounds more like rugby. The game opened with a goal for the Blacks by Miss Sullivan, and from the first, the Blacks outplayed the Reds, especially at the goal. Mrs. Francis Wright, Miss Francis Wright, was especially clever at throwing the goal and at the end of the first half of this basketball game, first half was 15 minutes, the score was 8-3 to three in favor of the Blacks. So, significant thing here is they were playing an outdoor basketball game on Squirrel Island off the coast of uh, Booth Bay in 1906, and uh, the final score was 20-7. to seven. But they would have crowds of like 1,500 people watching this. Just hard to imagine. We have some facts about the White House. When President Roosevelt moved into the White House, his quarters included only three chambers, two bathrooms, a living room and receptionist room, private dining room and kitchen. And as Mr. Roosevelt had a large family, he naturally found the quarters too small. This was due, however, not to the size of the White House, but because a large portion of it had for a long time been given up to executive offices. Many officials of the government had more commodious homes than the president himself. So Congress made an appropriation of $750,000 to renovate the White House and voted to turn it completely over to the president for his private residence and construct a new building to be used for the executive offices. The building of the White House was begun in 1795 and finished by 1796 being occupied for the first time by President John Adams. So it's just a small place originally. According to the plans, there were originally two colonnades instead of one, one on the west, the one standing, and one in the east. So a new colonnade was constructed, 267 feet long, 28 feet wide, and containing, I can't read that, number of compartments to be used as cloakrooms for the accommodations of the guests. The interior was completely renovated, new floors were laid, old timbers, which had become tired, were replaced with steel beams and girders. 
from the state dining room was enlarged to seat 120 people instead of 50, and seven new bathrooms were installed. I wonder how much has changed from that today. And we had some automobile news from this day in 1906. An extended tour is being taken by Alan St. Clair of Whitefield, New Hampshire, who left Lewiston Thursday after a stop at the skiing station. Mr. St. Clair left home two months ago and has toured throughout much of Maine and Canada. He's now bound for a trip along the St. John River and intends to pass through Millinocket. He's driving with a party of six, and he has a Ford... A uh, car with six cylinders. Apparently, an automobile was just catching on here. It was a big thing. A. Russell of Lisbon bought a Rambler on Wednesday. George Estes of Rural Avenue in Auburn has recently received a runabout, which was ordered earlier in the season. I see Auburn was just listed by Realtor.com as one of the top ten zip codes in the country to move to right now. Harry Dingley of Lewiston has just received his Stanley steamer. It has a dark green body and yellow trimmings. Uh, V.E. Edwards and party of Worcester, Mass. passed through Lewiston on his return from the Moosehead Lake region. They're touring in a white steamer. They spent the night at the DeWitt. A small two-cylinder Ford runabout of 10 horsepower has been bought at the Lewiston Automobile Exchange by C.E. Rising of Rockland. And several local people have placed orders for the Model N Ford, which created a stir in New York. They will be interested to know that word has just been received in this city, that the factory has burned, and this has delayed all orders. It sounds like a Tesla. A new manufacturer has been secured, and it's expected that one or two machines will reach Lewiston by next week. These are light runabouts carrying two people. They have 18 horsepower, four cylinders, and weigh 800 pounds. I bet they're still in use today. A new 10 horsepower Stanley steamer has arrived for Agent D.F. Bean of Lisbon. And let's see what else. We have another story here. There's some of the, the local Down East Mike gossip from 19... Oh, this is actually 1887... Let's get to that. Deputy uh, Deputy Labor Commissioner Campbell visiting the shoe factories at Bethel a few days ago. This report out of the Oxford uh, Democrat. Two little girls and three boys were required to stop work on account of their age using slave labor there, the child labor at shoe factories in Bethel in 1887. Uh, another gossipy story from Gorham, a two-year-old daughter of Robert Shackford of White Rock strayed into the woods last Friday evening and was not found until the next morning when she was discovered asleep under some bushes. That happens today, doesn't it? Uh, let's see, out of Camden news, the postmaster at Camden, now practicing law in Boston, he's a former postmaster in Camden, and he's in Camden with his wife on a visit. That's exciting. There were seven pleasure yachts in the harbor on Friday. And let's see. Oh, A.M. Judson of New York is building a very pretty stone cottage near Stonyhurst on Osiers Hill. 
The system of waterworks here are just about completed in Camden. Now that house, that stone house in Osiers Hill is still there today. And that was in 1887. You can go, go walk there. It's a public, uh, public park. Mr. W.H. Blithen has just completed this out of Dover, has just completed some extensive improvements in his hotel, which was a short time ago supplied with a fine water system throughout the house from a large spring on a high hill above the village, giving a good head and splendid water. And Mr. Ed Sampson, who's the principal of the high school in Saco, is spending his vacation at his home in Dover and at his camp in Lyford Springs, Seebeck Lake. Good for him. There was a spiritualist camp meeting at Temple Heights, which is two miles below the Methodist camp in Northport. That began Sunday. will continue one week. And a mile below Temple Heights is the old village or Northport proper called Saturday Cove. You may have heard that name. It received its name from the first settlers who about a century ago sailed up the Penobscot Bay and landed here on Saturday. Uh, let's see, we have any other stories for you. Mr. Joseph Church out of Phillips, Maine. He's one of Phillips' well-to-do farmers. He filled his woodshed 40 years ago, and to this day, a large part of that first put in still remains. Now, that's a thrifty Mainer that fills his woodshed and for 40 years never has to touch the back part of it. There never was such member, such numbers of summer boarders in Phillips as the present year. They were coming up to Maine to rusticate and get healthy. Anson Dill, excuse me, it's kind of cute and Downey's mic gets all choked up over the, the emotion of these stories. Anson Dill is a very successful in fruit culture, having sold this year $30 worth of cherries, $10 worth of currants, and from a small bed of strawberries, over $8 worth, and he'll receive 20 to 25 from his plum trees. He books his orders a year ahead. I didn't know we harvested plums in Maine. That was out of Phillips, Maine. In Palermo, uh, Vest Toby is building a threshing mill in connection with a sawmill, at Palermo to be run by water power and will be in running order this week. And I think there's a Toby's uh, Variety Store there in Palermo. That name must still be there. Well, it's time for our bi-weekly bird. And our, our bird today is a broad-winged hawk. Uh, the broad-winged hawk is a small hawk. It's common in eastern woodlands in summer stays around the edge of the forest. Broad wings are often not very noticeable during the breeding season, but they form spectacular concentrations when they migrate. Almost all individuals leave North America in the fall, and they go to Central and South America, sometimes thousands, can be seen along ridges, coastlines, or lake shores when the wind conditions are right. I've seen one of those migrations before. Uh, more summary on that. Each fall, hundreds of thousands of broad-winged hawks leave the northern forest for South America. They fill the sky sometimes in huge flocks that contain thousands of birds at a time, and these kettles are a prime attraction at many hawk watch sites. As they move from the broad stretches of North America to northern parts of Central America, 
Their numbers get concentrated, leading people to describe places such as Veracruz, Mexico, and Panama as a river of raptors. Scientists are tracking four of these as they migrate south in the fall. They average 4,350 miles, traveling about 69 miles each day. On the wintering grounds, they don't move much. They stay on average within a one-square-mile area. They have found late Pleistocene fossils of broad-winged hawks up to 400,000 years old, uh, and those fossils have been unearthed in Florida, Iowa, Illinois, Virginia, and Puerto Rico. Uh, oldest one found was 18 years old when it was recaptured after sustaining an injury in Florida the same state where it was banded in 1970. He was later released. Broadwing Hawk. Uh, so let's see. We we were going to read the news headlines because there's one story that jumped out at us here. Let's see. Where is that story? It, it is. Ultramarathoner Dean Carnese's attacked by a coyote on a 150-mile run. Now, we were just thinking about Dean. Dean goes out and... He'll go out running at 3 in the morning on these 30 and 40, 50 mile training runs. Just crazy long runs. And he's burning so many calories that he'll have like a, a helper drive along and and hand him a, a, a Big Mac and shake. And he'll just, as he's running along, he'll just chow down any of that stuff. And he, it doesn't even, doesn't even phase him. But he was attacked by a a coyote during a 150-mile run in California. Uh, I guess it was early early Saturday morning when the uh, coyote lunged at him and bit him on the on the face, which is just awful. Uh, He was using poles on the trails and he used one to to whack the coyote. He thinks the coyote wanted his energy bar. And as he began to take a bite, the animal lunged and knocked him to the ground. So obviously he made it out of it okay. Uh, let's see, that's about it for for today's podcast. We, we'll take a quick look at the weather just to get everybody uh, all acclimated for the day. It's uh, currently 65 degrees here in Maine. We, we expect some showers throughout the day and we desperately need the rain, of course. And so showers with a north wind, 10 to 15 miles per hour. For Thursday, tomorrow, rain before 8 a.m., then showers throughout the day with a high near 70. Friday, sunny with a high near 79. But uh, overall, the best part about this forecast is we are getting that rain that we desperately need. And uh, that's about it for the podcast today. I hope that you and your loved ones enjoy a day that is full of grace, love and kindness. Until next time, this is Down East Mike saying, we'll see ya. I'm troubled by Elon Musk's suit The way the pants bunch up at the boot And I really have to wonder With your pirate's plunder How your tailor got the boot before he finished the suit So get yourself some teas like Zuckerberg And get some shorts like Bezos And style yourself 
Like the zillionaire you are If you need it, put out the clothing tip jar And we'll love you till the end of days No matter what the internet says You'll never generate the hate Unless you start dressing like Bill Gates Nostradamus predicted all this mess And we're sending up the fashion flag of distress So pull yourself up by your bootstraps And don't ever look back Your pants will hang just fine Until it's clothing time So get yourself some teas like Zuckerberg And get some shorts like Bezos Oh, style yourself like a zillionaire you are If you need it, put out the clothing tip jar Or we'll love you till the end of day No matter what the internet says You'll never generate the hate Unless you start dressing like Bill Gates